Well, happy Christmas, y'all. I told the staff I like to say happy Christmas in honor of my European friends. They don't say Merry Christmas, they say happy Christmas. So I'll say Merry New Year as well. This morning, we're going to uh, continue in our series on a season of grace. I suppose if, um, if there was one word that we could overlay for this entire series, it might be the word unlikely. I say the word unlikely because the, the people that we have looked at in the Christmas story are, are some of the more unlikely characters that you might see. Do you remember the story of Tamar and, and Ruth and Rahab, Bathsheba? Some very unlikely women are inserted into the genealogical record of Jesus, so contrary to the custom of the day. Then we look at a man by the name of Joseph. We know Joseph well because he's in the Christmas story, but if Joseph hadn't made it into the Christmas story, we would never know who he was. Today we're going to kind of consider just the words of another unlikely person whose name is Simeon. The word Simeon actually means... He who listens. Simeon was a character who listened to the Lord because the Spirit spoke to him, and the Lord told him that you're not going to die until you hold. And by hold, he means hold in your hand so you see till you hold the consolation of Israel. The word consolation means comfort. And in those days, these people were oppressed. They were distressed. They were abused. They were punished. They were set upon. Their life was so difficult. They were clinging as it were, by faith's last strand to the consolation of Israel. The promised Messiah who would come, and and lo and behold, this man Simeon, righteous and devout, the Bible tells us, was a man who would get to see him personally. In fact, the the Spirit told him, you're not going to pass away, you're not going to die until you get to see Jesus. How unlikely is that? And so Mary and Joseph come up with their their young baby Jesus, they make their humble offering of, of some turtle doves. They go in, they see Simeon, and Simeon sees this baby, and I'm paraphrasing the story, but he takes him in his arms, and, and Simeon gets to cuddle the baby Jesus. And wouldn't that be cool? That'd be so awesome. I mean, I'm sure many of you, you've had babies before, right? You get to cuddle them, you get to hold them. You get to look at them, and, you know, babies are, are they're so great the first few days that they're born, you know? After that, there's so much work. But, man, they're just, they're just so great when you're holding them, you, you get to look at them. That's what, G, that's what Simeon got to do with the baby Jesus. How cool would that have been? But then Simeon does something that I don't know if we fully understand the impact, the import of what Simeon did. Simeon gave what theologians often call a song. We look at it in the scriptures. It could, it could be a poem. It's, it's, it's a poetic structure at the very least. And so when you ever, whenever you see poetry, and you know if you've ever studied Shakespeare in school, that, that the words don't always match the meaning in the way that most common people would understand it, right? I'm not very sophisticated when it comes to poetry. I like roses are red, violets are blue. My favorite poem, however, is this poem of, I can't even remember the the person who wrote it, but it, it is attached to this picture of this older man and this older woman who are sitting together at their breakfast table, and they're having, they're having a meal together. And I, lo- I love this poem. 
And here's all it says. As he is looking at her, I can imagine him saying this to her, and I put myself in the picture, and I imagine me saying this to my wife because this is as romantic as I can get. This is what he says. Same old slippers, same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. That's the best I can do. So here is Simeon. And he's saying these words, and and listen to what he says. He says about Jesus, he says that he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Revelation means the unfolding of knowledge. The Gentiles are all of those who are not not Jewish in that day. So Jesus is this, this light of knowledge that is coming to all who have never seen him. A light of knowledge to the Gentiles. The Gentile world was all of the world outside of Jerusalem. All of the world outside of where Jesus lived. A light of knowledge. And then he also says, this is scary. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is is opposed so that thoughts from the hearts may be revealed. Now, what does that that really mean? Let me put it in in roses are red, violets are blue terms. It means that Jesus is going to change the world. That's what it means. More than that, it means that as Jesus changes the world, there are going to be those who are risen, who rise up, who are blessed and who are favored because of him, and there are those who will not be. In other words, Jesus is prophesied over by Simeon, and Simeon says this child, he doesn't say it in these terms, but his meaning is this child is the division of the world. That's pretty powerful stuff. So as we consider my thoughts this morning, I'm going to kind of go in a little different direction, and I I, I want you to stay with me. It's going to be a little more heady today, so, so I hope you're awake. But let me put it to you in these terms. How many of you have ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Just out of curiosity, how many of you saw it in the theaters when it debuted? Well, you know the basic story. There's there's George Bailey, he's played by Jimmy Stewart. He's in this small town. He's anxious to, to leave this small town because everybody wants to leave the small town, except in Hallmark movies, everybody wants to go to the small town. So George Bailey's trying to leave, trying to get out of town. And he, he, remember, he's, he's almost getting on the bus to leave. But then something happens. His dad gets sick and he can't leave. Long story short, he, gets, he has to take over his dad's bank. And he doesn't like it, but he's doing the job. And then there's this evil character, Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter finds money that his brother George had lost. And as a result of that, this, this crisis comes on the city. George Bailey is suspected of of wrongdoing because of the the missing money and the effect it's placed upon the town. And so you remember the one scene in the movie where George Bailey is standing on the side of a bridge. He's peering down into the dark and icy waters, and he's just about to jump over. And Clarence, the bumbling angel, appears. Clarence tries to convince him not to jump. He has no success. And and so instead what he does is he gives George Bailey an opportunity to look at the town 
as though he had never been born. And then the whole movie is about what he sees as a result. Now, just for a moment, let's ask the question of us. A question similar to what Simeon was was getting at. The question is this. What if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born? How would our world be different? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hang on to your seats because I, I am, I am going to go so fast. And I need you to just stay with me. But hang on till the very end because I'm just going to dump you with a bunch of thoughts and then bring it all back to a conclusion. Are you ready? Can you do it? All right, here we go. If Jesus had never been born, education would not be the same. It tells us in 1 Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Education is very important in our world today, but education is the way it is in large part because Jesus had been born. Let me give you some examples. The, the literature of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans would probably be lost to us today if it weren't for Christian monks who were preserving ancient secular literature. In fact, they would preserve it, they would take care of it, they would guard it so that we would have the knowledge from those generations. The world's oldest universities, the oldest university is one in Italy, founded in 1088, Oxford, founded in 1096. Universities were started because of the, the, the desire for knowledge to be spread. The Gutenberg printing press, you remember that device, is considered by many and was noted by Time magazine as the most important event in the last 500 years of world history. Such important things. The reformers wanted everyone to be able to read so that they could read the Bible. In fact, Luther argued that it was necessary for society to be educated. He held that schools were so important so that they could educate preachers, lawyers, writers, physicians, schoolmasters, and the like. And, and, John, and, and um, Martin Luther concluded that we cannot do without these. Did you know that the first 120 universities created in the United States of America began with Harvard? But all of them started were started by followers of Jesus Christ for the advancement of the Christian faith. The American public school system is part of the legacy of Puritan education. There are linguists working all over the world today, even as we speak in various parts of the country, trying to take unwritten languages and put it into writing with the express purpose that people could be able to read the Bible in their own language. The Dalai Lama said that Christian missionaries make the greatest contribution in education and health care in the remotest corners of the world. Organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translation are out translating the Bible so they can be read. We've been told that poverty and illiteracy often occur together, yet the situation in India said the education, of, uh, a minister of education in India said that Christian missionaries have played a major role in taking education to the poor and the downtrodden in the country. What does all of this mean? It means that when Jesus got in the hearts of people, they knew that the way that their lives could be changed, the way that God could be glorified, was that people would learn to not just read, but they would learn to think critically, that they would learn to assess their world. And if Jesus had not come, the truth is, if Jesus had not come, that the spread of literacy around the world would not be the same as it is today. That's not to say it wouldn't be the case. There were people reading before Jesus. 
But the truth of the matter is simply this, that education was a tool of the church, a tool of Jesus Christ to help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus had not been born, I guarantee you education would not be the same. If Jesus had not been born, medicine would not be the same. It tells us in Matthew 14, 14, but many other verses like it. He says he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. There is something about Christianity that cares not only for the souls of people, that also cares for the body of people. The Hebraic mind often viewed the body as a, as a, as in a holistic standpoint, not a dualistic. The Greeks taught us there was body and soul, but the Hebrew mind said that there is body and soul together, not separate parts, but we all work together. When the soul is not good, the body's not good. When the body's not good, the soul often is not good. There's this sense of holism. And so there was this idea among Christians that if we could help people, if we could help their bodies, if we could bring healing to the sick, then some great things, then the soul condition could also be Resolved, And we see as early as 369 A.D. that St. Basil of Caesarea founded the very first hospital. It was a Christian hospital. Prior to this time, the Greeks had had, had some, uh, some centers where, where people could come and get a little bit of health care, but nothing like a hospital. Buddhists had often experimented with hospital-like centers. Even the Roman military had what, they would, what we might call Roman... Uh, uh, of military hospitals, but none of them were like this founded in 369. So he founded the first hospital in, in the Christian world. Christian, uh, and the Christian hospitals began to grow, and by the mid-1500s, there were 37,000 Benedictine monasteries alone. Now what's so interesting about that is that, the, the, that Charlemagne in 800 had decreed that every cathedral should have a school, a monastery, and a hospital. So the members of the Benedictine order, they began to spread. In fact, they themselves were often trained as physicians so they could minister to both body and soul. When we look at the history of Europe, we see that, that the Catholic Church spread hospitals from location to location to location. When we move after the Reformation, we see this impulse of Christ to, to, to care for those who were sick in the work of missionaries around the world. Just a few examples. Dr. John Scudder in 1819 went to Ceylon. Dr. David Livingston went to Central Africa. Dr. Albert Schweitzer went to the, for, the remotest forest of, of Gabon. Albert Cook founded the, a hospital in Uganda. William Wanless founded a hospital in India. Ida Scudder founded a, a hospital and a college medical college in India. Hudson Taylor took the gospel and medicine to China. Paul Brand worked with lepers around the world. Here's what we see. A man by the name of Dr. Charles Rosenberg wrote the following. He said, the modern hospital system owes its origins to Judeo-Christian compassion. He went on to say that the largest faith-based institutions in America are St. Vincent's, St. Luke's, Mount Sinai, Presbyterian, Mercy, Beth Israel. If you look around, every, almost every region has a Methodist hospital or it'll have a Baptist hospital or it'll have a Presbyterian hospital. In Orlando, there's a large, there's a large link of Adventist hospitals. Here's what we understand. 
is that because of the compassion of Jesus Christ, so instilled in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ, that when the opportunity came, they spread out around the world and they took healing to the nations. They, the Bible tells us that Jesus would be a healer for the nations. We often think of it as just being Jesus, but it's Jesus and his followers who are the healers of the nations. And because of Jesus, the world is not the same. The, the medical system is not the same. So what if Jesus had never been born? Then science would not be the same. Ecclesiastes tells us, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. St. Anselman in the 11th century said that faith seeks understanding. And that's been the premise behind all scientific endeavors. Wherever it's taken is Christian, Christian's Christian faith has sought understanding of the world. Christians have wanted to understand how it is that the God of the Creator could create all that He did. And they wanted to learn about it. Did you realize that sometimes in today's society, today that there is this, there is this, um, there's this battle, it seems, between faith and science? Have you ever experienced that? I have a friend of mine I went to high school with, and um, he is a... Uh, he got his Ph.D., and he specializes in molecular nanobiology. Very, very specialized field. And um, one day we were, we were just talking, and I had him send me. I said, we were talking about the stuff that he had done. I said, I, I said man, I'd be really interested to read your resume. So he sent me his resume that was about, you know, about like a small book. And it listed all of his inventions, all of his, his publishing, all of his patents. And it was like five or six pages long. It was, it was really, really very impressive. But what was interesting is we were on a guy's trip. We played baseball together in high school, and another friend of mine was on the trip. The, the three of us take a, try to take an annual trip together somewhere, usually to watch a, a weekend of baseball together. So we're sitting around in a room one day, and, and we just watched a, a baseball game up on the, on the East Coast. And we were just talking about stuff. His dad was a, was a pastor, but he's not in church. And I was just trying to, I was just trying to share faith with him. He, know, he knows what I do and respects what I do and, and honors my occupation. But he, like many, while respectful, often thinks of us Christians as being a little less than the sharpest pencil in the box. Because how could we Christians deny all of, all of these scientific things that we've been discovered? And, and what I want to say to him is, is I don't deny, and nor do I unappreciate the role of science. But you need to understand that science is where it is in large part because of what Christianity has done for it. Did you know that until the French Revolution, all scientific endeavor, in the Western world at least, had been sponsored by the Catholic Church? That faith, the church, was sponsoring science so that we could learn more about science? That, 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 that monks and priests and friars would study at universities about the things of the natural order. Galileo's research were the result of this, this idea that faith seeks understanding. Jonas Kepler, who was a German, spoke of God in science and celebrated, in fact, Many English scientists who founded the Royal Society of Science in 1660 were connected with the Puritans. Even as we move into the 20th century, Pope John Paul II maintained that he saw no contradiction between science and biblical accounts of creation and etc. Christians have been behind and leading the charge when it comes to science because we believe that science is a way to understand what God has given to us and to help those who live in the world. If Jesus had never been born, protection of life 
would not be the same. Psalm tells us that, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. There has always been this compassionate element to, G- to, to followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the story is told that just after the first century, when Christians were being persecuted in Rome, it was, it was common among Roman communities um, that, that they would take, if a girl was born into the family, that it was permissible for this girl to be thrown outside to starve and to die, to be eaten by wild animals, if, if the case was. Boys were a premium because of the military, but girls were dispendable. And there was this, there was, there, it's written, it's in historical accounts where Romans would often take their, their young infant female or boys who were born deformed or, or in, some less, in some way less than perfect, they would throw these children out just to die. But the story is told from history that Christians would watch these, these events and they would go and they would pick up these babies and they would bring them into their own homes and they would raise them as their own. 65 years ago, a man by the name of Reverend Eric Everett Swanson flew from Chicago to South Korea to minister to American troops fighting in the Korean War. While he was there, he saw he was troubled by the sights of, of hundreds of, of war orphans living on the streets, basically abandoned by society. So one morning he was, he was in the city and he saw that he saw this, this, um, this garbage truck was picking up trash and, and throwing, dumping it, scooping up the trash and throwing it into, into these trucks. And he saw what looked like pieces of rags and just being tossed into the back of trucks. So he went up to one of the trucks one day and he looked inside and wanted to get a closer look. And he was horrified to see that these piles of rags were the bodies of frozen orphans who had died overnight in the streets. He couldn't turn his back on them on these unwanted children, and he vowed to find a way to help them. Today, Compassion International International sponsors over 2 million children. A heart of compassion. The Church of God has their own program called Children of Promise, and later in 2020, you're going to learn more about that as we enroll our partnership with Children of Promise. The idea is that Christians care for children. I work with a partner organization called Stadia. They're a church planting uh, organization and they have a high success of rate of church planting. When they plant a church in the USA, every church they plant in the USA has a, a church overseas somewhere that they also work with. That church is involved in Compassion International. They have a motto that I love. Here's the motto of Stadia. They say, we will continue planting churches until every child has a church. Until every child has a church. That doesn't happen in other religions, but it happens with Christianity because we believe that children are precious, that children should be preserved, that there is a a sanctity of life. Did you know in the United States of America, since 1973, 50 million children have been aborted? Do you know that every year alone, 56 million children are aborted? 45% are done unsafely. There is this heart of compassion that rests in Christians because of what Jesus Christ did for us that compels us to protect life for those whose life are undervalued or ignored. If Jesus had never been born, economics would not be the same. Honor the Lord with your wealth, says Proverbs. Now what does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus wasn't a businessman. Yes, he was a carpenter up to a certain point in his life, but, but then he became, the, became ultimately became our Savior. 
But what, is this, what does economics have to do? Did you know that the meaning of work, the value of labor, and other economic issues are central to the Christian view of the workplace? The places where you work, if you're a Christian, if you own a Christian business, your Christian business should demonstrate the values of Christ for every person. Let me just give you a few examples of a Christian's economic understanding of the world. We believe as Christians, as Christian businessmen and women, that everything we do is to God's glory. God's glory is our greatest aim. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. So we use, we understand that God's glory is our greatest aim, and that means in our businesses, God's glory is our greatest aim. That's what we are working for. That's what we're striving for. The Christian economic worldview recognizes human dignity as central to its system. We recognize the value of those who work for us. We should never need a union to tell us how valuable workers are. Nothing against unions per se, but we should never need a union to tell us that. Management should just understand the value of those who work in our enterprises. Christian economic worldview rewards initiative. We often quote the old phrase, I use it with my kids a lot, you don't work, you don't eat. That's economics in the West Incorporated household. We reward initiative and hard work. The Protestant work ethic is one of the greatest gifts that, 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 that the church has ever given to the world because we work hard. We work hard because we're working unto God and we want to give Him our very best. The Christian economic understanding promotes generosity. We should, we should and I don't want to be too political here, but here's what I'm saying. We, we, should, we should, as Christian businesses, we should... Trust God for what we receive. We should bless God for what we receive, but we should take care of our workers. We should be generous with those who labor among us, whether that comes to health care or any other issue. However that works out, we need to care for those who work for us. But at the same time, the Christian economic understanding of work means that all we do is to advance the mission of the church. One, one doctor, Dr. Woodbury, once made a study of the effect of Protestant missionaries have had on various parts of the world, particularly when it comes to the area, this issue of, of economic development. And here's what he learned. When he studied all these various countries where missionaries had a, Protestant missionaries had a great impact on the country, he found this. He found that they were economically more developed, comparatively better health care and health, Lower infant mortality rates, lower rates of corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more ro robust membership in non-governmental associations. Here's what we've learned. You look at the table of nations. You go down that table of nations, and you will find that where Christ, through the work of Protestant missionaries, through, through the work of God's Christian church, that these nations are better because of Christ's presence in our work among them. That's because Jesus makes a difference. Let me just give you a couple more real quickly. If Jesus had never, had never been born, politics would not be the same. I really should have written government would not be the same. I'm not sure politics are... I don't know how that's different, but anyway, governmental agencies. He says we should pray for our rulers. Constantine was the first emperor to adhere to Christianity. He issued an edict that proclaimed Christianity was the official religion of the empire because he was so impressed by Jesus Christ. As a result of that single event, the trajectory of the world was changed. 
It was changed because the church became a central part of society and all the things we have talked about moved, to the, moved from the fringes to the center. And Christians were allowed to have a voice in society. Now today, we know that that's not the same. As we look around today, we look around America, we look around our society, we look to Western Europe, we look to, to places where, where once Christianity was the stronghold, we're noticing that those nations are becoming less and less Christian. When Cindy and I were, were missionaries in Australia, the rule of thumb was only about 4 to 5% of the nation were born-again believers. Only 10% of the nation ever attended church. The average size church in Australia was 40 people. Church was considered to be a place for, for women and children, and men didn't get involved. We see that, that, that the centrality of religion and of Christianity in many of our countries is diminishing. But it was Christianity that gave us, gave the world an opportunity to do something it had never done before. If you remember from school the Magna Carta and its principles, if you remember how from the Magna Carta we went to British common law and then we developed republic-type systems and democratic principles, and all of these things led to, to human rights. And what they were was they were the incremental teachings of Jesus that was being spread into our culture so that people could live a life at a higher level. Do we appreciate armies and police that protect us? Do we value the right to vote and elect our representatives? Do we appreciate the relative tranquility of a just social order? All of these are fruits. They're fruits of what Christ has done because of Him living inside of His people. Now, brothers and sisters, there's one more that I need to share with you. If Jesus had never been born, you would not be the same. You would not be the same. You see, because of Jesus, your soul can be saved. Because of Jesus and all that He has done, your mind can be renewed in Christ Jesus. Because of all that Jesus has done, your heart can be enlarged. That your behavior can be holy. That your goals can be heavenward. That, that your love can be all-encompassing to those around you. That, that your compassion is bottomless. Because of Jesus Christ, you are no longer who you are but you have become new. The Bible tells us that you have become a new creation because of what Jesus has done. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. I, I know I've given you a lot, of, a lot of things to think about, but here's the, here's the bottom line to it. Because Jesus was born, and He lived so powerfully in the hearts and lives of His believers. Those believers were energized to tackle the toughest issues of life. And they did so in a way that, that represented the value of life, that cared for everyone. Sometimes Christians are accused of, of being, uh, of being uh, um, discriminatory and, and uncaring and unloving in our actions, but that should never be the case. We should be the most loving, the most outgoing, the most energetic, the most, the most hopeful, the most positive, the most engaged in all that happens in our society. That's because of what Jesus did for us. And you see, I began this day by talking about an unlikely story. We talked about Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and, and Bathsheba and Joseph and Simeon. But there's one more unlikely person in the Christmas story. And that without this person, the world could not be the way it is today. That unlikely person? That's you. That's you. So, so here we are, 
in the church. And you're going you're gonna to leave this week and, and some of you are going to go off into retail. God bless you. You're going to work and there's going to be people who are coming in who are, you know, they're rushing around. They're trying to get gifts for their loved one and being unloving in the way they do it. You're going to be sitting there at the cash register. Oh, that's too old. Sorry. The modern concept is you think it and it's there, but you're checking them out, scanning. And as you're scanning it, you have an opportunity to say to them, you can't say Jesus loves you anymore. You can barely say Merry Christmas, right? Say Happy Christmas and tell your boss, oh, it's European, it's okay. But they're fretting and they're hurting. You have a chance to say something. See, when, you, when they come through your cash register, who's coming? Here's who's coming through. There's the lady who just lost her husband. But she's buying a Christmas gift anyway. Because that's what she's always done. There's a man who's coming through who's opening up his wallet and he, he only has a few dollars left because he lost his job, but he knows he needs to get his, his kids something. You know, through that register, there's going to come someone who's been diagnosed with the disease and they're scared or fearful for their life. And this Christmas is different than any other Christmas they've ever been a part of. There's a lady whose husband's been abusing her. She's trapped. She doesn't know what to do. There's a woman coming through who maybe years ago aborted a baby. And now she wonders what Christmas would be like if she still had him or her. See, when I give you all this information, and I know it's a lot, and I appreciate you being so kind and gracious to listen here's what I want to say to you. He said, what Jesus did was so unlikely. If we didn't have the scriptures, we would never even know about Jesus. But we do. And Jesus changed the world. And he continues to change the world. Only now he's doing it, not through all of these people that I've talked about back then, but he's continuing to do it through you. You're the unlikely story. You're the story that lives in the world. This whole series has been about grace. What is grace? Remember, it's unmerited favor. It's, it's God giving us something good that we don't deserve. I want to I change this up a little bit this morning. The title of the message was Grace Walks Here. Because here's what I think. I think every one of you today has the name Grace. My name is Timothy Brian Grace West. And I walk here. The world doesn't know it because I'm an unlikely person. The world doesn't recognize me because I'm unlikely. But according to Scripture, the world doesn't deserve grace, but God gives it anyway. Me, you, we're God's gift of grace to people this Christmas. And yes, you're unlikely. And yes, you are God's choice. Pray with me. Father, thank you for today, for us being your people, called to do unlikely things in whatever sphere we live in, whether it's science or medicine or 
politics or economics, whatever it happens to be, God, that's where we work. We are grace there. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this last song. The altars are always open, too, by the way. If you want to pray with someone or <coughs> someone to pray over you, go over here. Pray by yourself over here. Let's worship together. and died for me I see his bones his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree his body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy storm, Messiah still and all
your next opportunity to uh, worship the Lord is just uh, today. Today's what? The 22nd. So that means the 23rd and that's two days, right? That's two days. Two days. Two days for you to be an unlikely servant for the Lord. Two services. We're just praying and trusting God is going to to give people an opportunity to come for for an evening to hear about Jesus who might not never grace these doors. So it's up to you. Go out and, and do His work and invite them in. The lame and the blind and the poor and all of those folks. Bring them in for a great day of worship. All right? Let's pray together. Father, as we leave today, we do so knowing that because of you, this world is different. And because of me, it can be different still. Lord, I ask that you would bless our day of rest, that you would return us back in two days, Lord, with family and friends, neighbors, joining with us, that they might hear the name, the wonderful and blessed name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Go in peace.